Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, welcome in everyone. We are uh, going to be wrapping up our series in the Gospel of John as we go through the New Testament in a year-ish. And uh, we have, a, as we've done with every book of the Bible so far, we've had a guest come in. And man, I'm excited about uh, today's guest. So Rob, go ahead and do our intros. We're so pleased to have Marianne May Thompson, who's the George Eldon Ladd uh, Professor Emerita of New Testament at Florida Theological Seminary. She has a PhD from Duke. She's written numerous books and articles, mostly on John and first and second, third John. She wrote a commentary on the gospel of John. She wrote a book called the God of the gospel of John. She also wrote the humanity of Jesus in the fourth gospel. Uh, another one of her books is called the promise of the father, Jesus and God in the new Testament. And of course, commentaries on the epistles of John, as well as Colossians and Philemon. So Marianne or Dr. Uh, Thompson is so uh, great to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Let's begin by really kind of just getting a framework of your understanding of the gospel of John as a whole. So you note in your book on the gospel of God in, in the book of John, by noting that uh, God has so often been left out of New Testament theological conversations. Uh, you say that in your book, quote, the gospel uh, of John provides abundant evidence to support contentions that its fundamental question is the question of God and how God is known and revealed. Uh, do you think this is John's major goal? And if so, you know, how does that, how does that work in the gospel of John? Well, I think most people think, and there's good reason to think so, that the Gospels are about Jesus. They are stories about Jesus, and the main character is Jesus. And so I'm not disputing that they're narratives about the life of Jesus. But when you begin the Gospel of John, and it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then John 1.18, that you have that prologue in the beginning of the Gospels, the mm -hmm. first 18 verses. And it starts by saying, somehow this Word is with God and was God. And then in John 1, 18, 17 and 18, no one has ever seen God, the only son who is in the bosom of the father, he has made him known. Okay, so whatever this story is about, it is about someone, some, some word that was with God and has come to make God known. And once you say that, the story of Jesus' life always has to be read in relationship to God. There, there is no story about Jesus unless that is somehow related to his identity in God. And that, of course, has implications for who God is. Um, John has this mutuality to know the Father is to know the Son, to know the Son is to know the Father. You can't know one without the other. And so I think in part, John is trying to say this guy, Jesus, it's, yeah, he's a rabbi in Nazareth in the first century. But to know who he is, to know his story, to understand his story, ultimately, you are going to be taken into the question, how then does he relate to God and who is, how do we understand God? So John is writing this account of Jesus in the first century, but John writes really late, much later than the other uh, than the synoptics. Why do you think the purpose of this? Why, why is John writing so late? Uh, are there conflicts happening within the Christian community or even non-Christian community? How, how do you normally uh, understand this? Well, of course, the question of the lateness of the gospel is somewhat open to discussion, right? So that John is often placed about the year 90 or so, but Matthew and Luke are often placed in the 80s, 85. So the difference isn't, mm -hmm. isn't huge. You know, you may be talking five to 10 years at the most. I think the end of the first century has, tells us something about each of the gospels and may indeed tell us something about John. But I think you're talking now about John's distinctives, what makes John different from the other Correct. Gospels, yeah. and does lateness account for it? Does, mm -hmm. does that have something to do with it? 
I would say only in part. Um, there really is a difference in the way John chooses to tell the story and the choices he makes about what material he includes, what vocabulary he uses, what he emphasizes. Those, to me, are basically separable from the question of the date of the gospel. Hmm. So they, 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 they exist. They are questions that are almost unanswerable, no matter what the date of the gospel is. They have perplexed scholars for years. How do you account for the differences of John from the other gospels? Hmm. And so for you, it's not, it doesn't have to do with chronology at this point. Not, not really. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, chronology is, is an interesting question, but it only, I think the better question would be something like this. What's going on at the end of the first century that John should write as he does? However, the question can also be asked, what's going on at the end of the first century that Matthew can write as he does? You know, mm. so if you put them roughly in the same part, chronology is not the only factor at work. Now, having said that, that also depends on how you understand the relationship of John to the other Gospels, mm. whether John follows all of them and is deliberately reflecting on them or whether John is independent of them. And if so, chronology would be irrelevant, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit? What's your mm -hmm. thought in terms of John's relationship mm -hmm. to the synoptics, at least not at least the gospel of Mark, because if, if anything, Mark's written earlier, it could be 20, 25 years earlier, right? So is there, is there a relationship? You know, we, we, you, you do know that we make up all the dates of the gospel, <laughs> yes, that, we, yes. that we actually have no external evidence or, or little that corroborates these dates. But yeah, Mark is generally placed earlier. Right. Um, and there you get into some technical questions, such as does the Gospel of John have access to know and use the Gospel of Mark? Right. And if you answer that yes, then the second question would be, and when he writes, does he think his readers have Mark and are mm -hmm. reading Mark and can only sort of understand or comprehend what he's doing if they have Mark in one hand? And his gospel in another, so that they can say, "Aha, aha! Look how this fit." You know, you know, is mm -hmm. it is it that mm -hmm. sort of project? And in my mind, it isn't. Oh, um, okay. I don't think. Although the trend today is to move towards uh, an understanding that John is somehow using or or knows Mark, he may know of Mark. He may have read Mark, but it's really hard to understand John as for me as some kind of commentary on Mark, some kind of rewriting of, of Mark. It's just so different that um, it seems just to be an independent gospel in some way. Even if the author of John has read these other gospels, he says, yeah, but I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just writes a, a, another gospel. And that's been, that was recognized early in the, right. in the history of the church already in the third century. Clement of Alexandria said, you know, the others all wrote what he called tasomatica, the bodily things or the physical yep. things. Mm -hmm. John wrote ta pneumatica, a spiritual mm -hmm. gospel, whatever that means. But it does at least mean he thought it was different in kind, not just in content, if that makes sense. So if I can, there's actually a couple of interesting questions on that, but let me take you to the question in terms of if he's writing at the end of the first century, which yeah. I think, okay, maybe so. Do you think that there is a conflict with Judaism that is influencing John's gospel and John's writing? And if so, how does it influence John's gospel and John's writing? That is a much debated question. Mm -hmm. It is a huge topic uh, debated in Johannine studies today. A lot of it depends. The answer to that question depends on how you frame 
the term Judaism and how you position John with respect to what we call Judaism. Let me make a couple of comments on how I think about that. Even at the end of the first century, it may be a little early to talk about Judaism and Christianity as distinct religions. So once we say, uh, is John, how does he relate to Judaism? It's almost as if you put him outside of Judaism. And so so maybe if I were to say, how how does John relate to the synagogue? Well, see here, here's an important thing. I think we need to remember that first century Judaism is a highly diverse phenomenon. Yeah, right, right. Okay, it's not a single thing. And you have, uh, you would have apocalyptic Judaism, you have Judaism like you've got at uh, Qumran, which is somewhat Mm -hmm. apocalyptic, but not only so. You have the beginnings of rabbinic Judaism in Mm -hmm. the Pharisaic tradition, which is more focused on interpretation of scripture, uh, legal interpretation, not legalism, but legal Mm -hmm. interpretation. Mm -hmm. So you already have quite a diversity in first century Judaism. So when you say, um, how does John relate to the synagogue or to Judaism, you could still answer the question, ask the question, which Judaism? Okay. Mm -hmm. So what if we think about John? it's, It's the thought of experiment. John himself I think is a Jew, is, is a Jewish author, mm-hmm. and he's positioned within Judaism right. and writing about Jesus from his tradition, to be sure, against or vis-a-vis or in light of these other traditions, but trying to argue for uh, that the story of God with Israel that you find narrated in the scripture now continues along this trajectory. Right. Not that one, not right. that one, not that one. So he does, if you want to say, he does distance himself from some other trajectories within Judaism. That's not the way to go. But that's a little different, mm-hmm. I think, than mm-hmm. saying, you know, is John have a polemic against Judaism? I think of it this way. If you think of the prophets of the Old Testament, they are speaking a word of of judgment against their own people. Mm-hmm. They right. also speak a word of promise and hope to their own people. Right. And I think that that sort is sort of the, the working image that I use when I think of the gospel of John. Jesus, John portrays Jesus speaking a word of judgment, of warning against his own people right. and offering mm. a word of hope and promise to his own people, like right. the prophets of old. Right. And if you're listening, what I think what you mean by that, and, and tell me if you think I'm wrong here, is the fact that many listeners are thinking, oh, his own people are Christians. Mm. And it's like, no, no, no. We're thinking of Christians in the context of being of Jews, of Judaism. Yeah. Jesus followers, to be sure, Christ yeah. followers, however right. you want to call them, sure. you know, this will be this, this does, uh, this division between what we call Judaism and Christianity does begin to pick up some steam into the second and third century. But right. in the Gospels, I think we're a little bit too early for that to be clearly mm-hmm. at work, if you will. Mm-hmm. If the Gospels about ultimately Jesus pointing himself to the pointing to the Father, He's yeah. making, the, making the Father known, the Gospel of John. What is the role of the Holy Spirit then in John's Gospel, and how does that relate to this larger topic of, of God's nature? Well, the Spirit, of course, one of the more interesting things about John is that this, the Gospel is, assigns to, spirit, to the Spirit a distinctive role, namely mm-hmm. that of teacher. Mm-hmm. And he will teach you many, the Spirit will teach you many things. The Spirit will guide you into all truth. The Spirit will uh, bring to mind the, my, the things about me, the things I've said. So 
it's interesting in John, isn't it? Jesus points to the Father. The Father points to Jesus. The Spirit points to Jesus. Jesus points to the, to the Spirit. But right. the Spirit is, in many ways, God's agent of making, of, of keeping, how would I say this? The Spirit points to Jesus in a way that makes his presence real even after Jesus is gone. Mm -hmm. Because there is in John, as you know, if you read chapters 14 through 17, this huge um, worry about what happens when Jesus goes away. Mm -hmm. I'm going away. How often he says, I'm going away. You can't come. You won't be there. Don't worry. I'm going away. And they, they think, yikes. <laughs> He's going away. Don't worry. Not only will the spirit be with you, it's, it's not that he takes Jesus' place. Mm -hmm. He'll be with you, but he's going to bring to mind the things I've said and done. I, I won't be out of the picture, even though he's, in a sense, absent. So um, this mutual, how would you say mutual, if you have three, Father, Son, and Spirit, of pointing to each other, of, mm -hmm. of teaching about the other, of calling to mind the other, those kinds of things are the beginning, if you will, or the the expression of what will become the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. okay. How would you see that playing out differently than how Matthew, Mark, and Luke present the role of the Spirit as contrasted to John? Well, there are some subtle differences. For example, especially in, uh, you know, Matthew, if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is never said explicitly to be empowered by the spirit for what he does so it's easier mm. to talk about and, and you could debate this but it's easier to talk about jesus as a man of the spirit or a spirit-filled prophet say in luke or matthew or even mark than it is in john so that the spirit doesn't seem to have quite that same role with respect to to jesus it, it is is part of what's going on there you don't have any, as you may know, you don't have any demon exorcisms in the right. Gospel of John. So you don't have this conflicting, this battle, this conflict between spirits, the Holy Spirit and the unclean spirit. Um, uh, the spirit is the agent of life in the Gospel of John, which I think is a distinctive emphasis. It may be implicit in the other Gospels, but it is the spirit that gives new birth. And so there are just some subtle differences. You, you hardly notice them because we're so... We so much assume this is what the Spirit is and does that we just assume it's in all the Gospels. But uh, John has some distinctive emphases, yeah. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend a lot of time discussing the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And yet the kingdom of God is essentially, other than maybe a brief reference in John 3, absent from John's Gospel. So does John still have the similar emphasis on the kingdom of God? And does he call it something else? Or, I mean, does he use a different term? And, and how does that fit in? Yeah, so let me let me say, I, I think John does two things that are a little bit different than the other Gospels. The first is, I think, as we all know, eternal life and life are more common in John yeah. than they are in the other Gospels. However, if you look at the other Gospels, it is fair to say that uh, what you have in the kingdom of God is life. You have eternal life in the kingdom. And it's almost as if John goes directly to the having of life without talking about this realm, this reality called the kingdom of God. But it's not quite that easy because one of the things that happens in John, I think, is that kingdom language becomes, I don't know if transmuted is the right word, but instead of the emphasis on kingdom, you really get an increasing emphasis on Jesus as king. 
So already in chapter one in the Gospel of John, Nathaniel says, you are the king of Israel. Mm -hmm. Chapter six, um, uh, as you talked about with John six, they wanted to make him king. Chapter 12, it's very explicit in the triumphal entry that he rides in as the king of Israel. Mm. Mark and Luke mentioned king. um, I can't remember which two other Gospels, maybe Matthew and Mark. But Jesus says he is the king of Israel. And then, of course, in the conversation with Pilate, Pilate yeah, yeah. are you a king? Mm, yeah. My kingdom is not of this world. And on the cross, the, in three languages, he is the king of the Jews. So remember, too, that in John, eternal life becomes identified with the person of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the life. And there's a sense in which that becomes also true about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is what is embodied in the person of Jesus, the king. So that both kingdom, the language of the kingdom of God, it seems to me, becomes reformulated to some extent, both in terms of eternal life and the life that is in Jesus, the king. So the the reality is there, this reality of God's work, the realm where God is. John just does use different language for it. That, I think that's true. It talks about the reality in different ways. Can we, even if they don't have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, even if his churches or his readers, whoever he's writing to, don't have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the prominence of kingdom theology or the kingdom issue in the, in the synoptics suggests to us that this is part and parcel of the gospel that Jesus was preaching. You know, Mark 1, verses 14 sure, and 15, right, the kingdom right. of God's at hand. Right. So can we assume then that John is saying that's a foundation that you already have to his mm-hmm. reader to his readers so i'm starting from that foundation and springboarding now to focus more upon the king and the god behind that king of whom he is make, being made known and that's perhaps why kingdom language might be somewhat absent and he's going into the deeper thing theology of eternal life and what that means and the implications of it for you and for everyone else You know, one of the big mysteries is this, what sometimes is called the dark period of what happens after the death of Jesus before, Mm -hmm. say, you get Paul. What do, what does anybody know about the Jesus movement? You know, and you say, Mm -hmm. well, we've got Acts, but even Acts is, it kind of picks up with Paul, you know, there's a few stories. And so what was the teaching of people like, what, what did they know? What was passed on? And we assume that what they had is the kind of thing that eventually gets written down in the Gospels. It it circulates its oral tradition, maybe in some written snippets. So they know about kingdom. Um, But once you start moving out of Galilee and Judea and you get into Gentile territory, they may not know the oral traditions in the same way. You know, so do they have, and that's, that's when it becomes interesting what do they get taught and by whom um, do they get? Paul doesn't talk very much about the kingdom of God. Interestingly, mm-hmm. you know, there are some lines here and there. The kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but on the whole, it is not the language of Paul. And so it's so it gets really interesting to ask, you know, I delivered unto you what I first received. What? You know, mm-hmm. What was it? What did early Christians know about Jesus? And one assumption can be, of course, it's the kind of thing you have in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, but it's just very striking that it's not the kind of thing you find repeated in Paul. So I'm again, it's hard to speculate, but it could well be that uh, John assumes certain kinds of things and is writing a different sort of story in light of the things that he assumes people know. Mm -hmm. But whether or not they know them, this is the story he wants to tell, right? Mm -hmm. 
I'm curious, you've used uh, kingdom of God and eternal life language, as we've talked about John specifically, as we go back to, yeah. to that gospel. Um, from a popular standpoint, I mean, those are both two terms that yeah. have become hijacked in American evangelical culture over the last you know number of decades. At its core, like if I don't want to say if you were to simplify it, but if, if you were to, to reduce mm. it down and, and speak on a layman's language, how do you define maybe those two terms specifically? And then what is the connection between the two? Because mm. I'm assuming it's not just eternal life means I get to go to heaven when I die. Or John, at least when, when we're talking about in John's context. So I have a colleague who teaches a whole quarter course on the kingdom of God, mm. <laughs> because there's a lot to say about it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. In a nutshell, the kingdom of God is that time and place, that reality over which God and God's rule holds sway. You know, so that for John, that is primarily up there, you know, and in a lot of the gospels, our father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come. You get the feeling it's it's not on this earth. It's not of this earth, but it comes to earth within the person of Jesus, if that makes sense. But Mm -hmm. that time and place, that reality over which God holds sway, the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important to remember uh, or to think of it this way, that the kingdom of God is perhaps best understood uh, in this way. God is king. That's what Mm -hmm. the Psalms say. That's what Isaiah say. It is when God is king. It's not a place. It's not a thing so much as a power of God ruling. And if we think of it more as God's rule, as opposed to... The thing that there is, we may be helped. Now, having said that, a king needs people, right? Or a territory, or a king's got to rule something. I, just to say God is king and it never has any concrete manifestation doesn't get you far. Mm-hmm. God rules the earth. God rules in Israel. God rules over his people. So there is something that God rules, that time and place over which God holds sway. I think, you know, um, eternal life, Here's one of the problems. A little bit of the problem is the translation eternal, mm-hmm. because actually no one is ever going to have eternal life because eternal means no beginning, mm-hmm. no end. Mm-hmm. That's why some people go with the translation everlasting. everlasting yeah. it, it's going to go on forever. However, it's also true that people have wanted, scholars have wanted to say, look, the better translation is the life of the age to come. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a quality of the kind of life we have as opposed to unending duration. So eternal life, life everlasting, the life of the age, however you translate it, the life that is that we have with God is the life that is, is exactly that. The life you have in the presence of God, the life you have in that time and place where God holds sway. And that's why the Gospel of John can say, you can have that now. You can enjoy that now. You can enter into that now because God's rule in Jesus is part and parcel of what we experience in this world. And when you say life in the age to come, is that in contrast to life in the present evil age? Yes, yes, that is. But right for John especially, it's not as if you have to wait to enjoy Mm -hmm. or participate in that because it's 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 as if it's making its inroads into the present or from above below through the through and in the person of Jesus in the church and in in, even in God's presence in in the world, however that is experienced. 
And then just to clarify yeah. one thing that you said early on, when you talked yeah. about even the Jewish thought of uh, even going to the, the Lord's prayer of you yeah. know he- heaven, uh, you know, coming because it's not here yet. It's somewhere yeah. else. I'm, I'm asking a question yeah, as sure. a statement, but are, are, what you're not saying, though, is that the thought of the, the Jewish person in the first century is that it's an outer space, even though it's not on earth. It's not like, <laughs> is, is yeah. that what you're meaning or like, help, help me understand that. You know, it's the Bible's pretty graphic. God is in the heavens, right mm-hmm. up there, uh, not not here. That is to say, and and yet God is in His holy temple. So you know, mm-hmm. if you ask the question, where in Scripture, where is God? You get a lot of answers. Yeah, and I think that's a hard one to answer. If we have to be, I think, generous to the first century mind, right? They didn't have space travel, so they couldn't go into outer space and say, well, you know, it just goes on forever and we didn't see anything. But God must be, God must be somewhere. God is not nowhere. God is somewhere. God's realm is vast beyond all measure. What do you see that's not on earth, but vast beyond all measure? You Hmm. see the heavenly bodies, you see the heavens. And somehow, you know, one of the hardest things to answer is the question you just asked, what did a first century Jew think about X? Mm -hmm. Because it's so diverse, yeah. (laughs) Not only is it diverse, what we have is the literary deposit of learned people. We don't know what the common person, we don't have interviews, we don't have surveys, you know, we we don't, they didn't write things that got remembered, their houses aren't preserved. It's all the deposit of the literary elite. Mm-hmm. And so that may not necessarily tell you what the average person actually thinks about where is God. Right. Gotcha. I don't know. I'm not trying to avoid the question. No, no, this I, is great. This is great. You see, it, it's just, I, I wish it, it's very hard to answer the question in New Testament cosmology, if I can talk about it that way, the the, the conception of the world, what's out there? Mm-hmm. You know, what God, spirits, angels, are they here? Are they there? Do they live somewhere? It's just, uh, and that's why I think it gets, anytime you get questions like that, what's going to happen in the future or what's out there, you will notice that the Bible just kind of pulls its punches and Mm. gets a little more general, good things, just trust me, good things, but no one's ever seen them, so how do we know? Mm. And then Paul says, well, nobody has seen them, but trust me, it's good. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you. Do us a favor, if this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just wanna get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we wanna encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out, and now we'll get back to the podcast. Let me ask now, yeah. what do you think is the role of Jesus appearing to his disciples in John chapter 20 and giving of them the spirit? Do you see that? A couple of, a couple of different facets to the question. Do you see that as a Pentecost type event that John's just simply mm-hmm. put into his gospel because he's not writing a supplement like, you know, like uh, Luke was? And what is the express purpose of that? Obviously, there's Ezekiel you know, coming into yeah. play here. Yeah. So how do you understand all that? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, if you ask me today, I would say, yes, it is a kind of Pentecost event. Um, okay. But it's very hard to know. You know, as you said, we don't have what he wrote for volume two. Would he have narrated something else? But 
this is, let's just say it this way. This is John's version of the giving of the spirit. Right. Okay. John's account. Mm -hmm. So what matters there? And I would point to two things. One, Jesus breathes on them. It's not the identical Greek word as in the Old Testament, but it's very close. And so I do think there's a parallel to the Genesis story of God breathing into them and giving them life. And that picks up from John 3 and John 7, where you have the spirit as the agent of life, the spirit that gives new birth. The spirit is the, the living water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus is breathing into them the spirit which empowers them for, for new life. So people say, oh, so then you don't think he's sending them on mission, go into all the world? No. Those things are inseparable. Those right. who have been reborn to new life carry that life into the world. They are sent, as Jesus is sent, on the business of dealing with sin and unbelief in the world and bearing witness to God and the reality of God and to Jesus and the life-giving power of Jesus. So I think those are two sides of one of the coin the power of the, the new life, but also the mission that is entailed within that. So I don't like to separate them. And sometimes scholars feel compelled to choose. It's either Genesis or it's mission. And I, I just think those are inseparable. Right. Hmm. Does that go back to the beginning of our conversation then, that, that the mission is to make God known? Uh yeah, and then it gets, you know, the son came to make God known. And then, of course, in John 20, 30 to 31, you have uh, that the reason for the writing of the Gospel of John. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have life in his name. So that really looks like, okay, the point of the Gospel is to get you to believe in Jesus. But, of course, the whole Gospel is trying to answer the question, and who is this Jesus? Hmm. He's the bread from God. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. He's the life of God, the way to God. If you take the of God or to God out of any of those sentences, he's the Lamb. Well, what does that mean? He's the bread. Hmm. Well, what does hmm. that mean? You need the, the of God there. So, yeah, the mission is always about making God known through the person of Jesus and the, and it, it's, it's just, a, it's, it's an inseparable story. Sometimes we tell it one way. Sometimes we tell it another way, depending on, I suppose, time and place, but ultimately that's the mission of the church. Yeah. Of the people of Jesus. But that's not just a, um, a message of proclamation, right? Especially in the gospel of John, isn't Wouldn't you say it's a, a message of application, a message of carrying it on They'll know you are my disciples. If you love one another. It's not just what Jesus said about God that made God known. It's what he did and who he was. Right, right. Yeah. And the signs that he does and the work on the cross and all of that, you know, it's, it's, it's word and deed mm -hmm. together. Um, yeah. It's very interesting that uh, one of the most important ways in which Jesus followers are to bear witness is in their love for each other, which right. is to redound to the world. Um it's almost a little embarrassing today to have to say that because that has not been a strong point oh, of the church. My church and is totally different. <laughs> yours, yours does that really well. Doesn't yeah, it? yeah. Oh, yours doesn't. But wow. you know, I, I'm actually working on a paper right now on all things of on John three sixteen and oh, wow. uh, God so loved the world and talking about love and you realize. 
this is the profound way in which father and son are bound to each other. This mm -hmm. union of love. Mm -hmm. We are drawn into this union with them, this mm -hmm. union of love. How could you make God known in any other way then than in expressing this love, which is the core of who God is from right. the very beginning? You know, Jesus says that you've loved me with the love from mm -hmm. the foundation of the world, you know, before it was ever created, there was, there was the love of the father for the son. Mm -hmm. So and let's so, let, oh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go no, ahead no, no. Well, I was going to ask a, a question on this point, because you point out in your book that the synoptics never mentioned God's right. love for Jesus or for the disciples, right. but this is a, a central motif, yeah. it seems like in the gospel of John. So why, why do you think that yeah. there's a, a difference between the two groupings of writing and, you know, how, how could we best understand that in within the church today? I have often talked about John or explained John in terms of you, you get some themes in the synoptics that John makes the whole symphony, you know? So on the mm -hmm. one hand, it's like you have a thousand themes in the synoptics and they just get funneled into one or two things in John or the one little theme that may be there gets exploded into the whole, like father, mm -hmm. Mark says what? three times or so God is father and John has it something like 120 times. So mm. something becomes really important. I've just re been reading a book by a scholar at Harvard named John Levinson. I don't know if you know that name. And it's a book on the love of God, the love of God, divine gift, human gratitude and mutual faithfulness in Judaism. And one of his main points is that you talk a lot. There's a lot of talk about love for God in, in, the, his Bible, the Old Testament. Um, but he his argument is that always presupposes the love of God for the, the human being. In other mm. words, that, that's so this language of covenant, of mutuality, love of God, God's salvation, it's all wrapped up there saying, what is what is this, what does this come from? What does this lead to? What, what, what is this about? And it's about God's love for the world. So I think um Curiously, John does not quote the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God mm -hmm. is one. You shall love the Lord your God, but you are to love Jesus, who is the one who leads you to the Father. And I think his way of talking about it is to say, look, this all goes back to the prior foundational reality that God loves us. Now, it would be nice if the Gospel of John were written with footnotes and he put, you know, number one, <laughs> I, I got this from the Shema or or I took this from such and such a place. How, how, but that that prior reality that runs throughout the Jewish understanding of covenant seems to me to be crucial to understanding God's love. <laughs> and if you're listening, we'll be discussing that a lot more as we go through Acts and, and Paul's writings. Yeah, I think it'd be even probably more significant to have footnotes with Paul, right? It's like, mm -hmm. where, where are you getting <laughs> yeah. this from? Because uh, he's even more obscure. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, Paul had a hard job. Not only did he have yes. to teach people the Christian faith, he had to teach them everything. You yes. know, they, they know nothing. So and then he had contentions on every single here, street corner. Here, here's, here's, a, here's a scripture. Did you understand what a scripture is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Interesting. What then is... You know, if you're if you're speaking to a congregation, and you're and they've asked you to give hey hey just give us an introduction to the Gospel of John, and what is the one key takeaway that you would want them to walk away with? Whether it's an whether it's a theological point or whether it's a practical applicational point, you want them to go home and and realize the Gospel of John saying this 
do that or think this or, or whatever it might be. That God is fundamentally turned towards the world in mm. love and that, that love is, is expressed in God's desire and power to give it life. That God is the life-giving God and that um, life in all its fullness, the creation, the created life, the life we have in the present, the life we will have. This is one big arc of God's orientation to towards the world. So that, you know, uh, on our bike ride this morning, there was a pickup truck parked and it had John 316 on its window. <laughs> in and out Burger, you know, it's John 316 on the cup and football games, John 316. I wish it weren't so overused because mm -hmm. it really sums up the gospel so well. God loved the mm -hmm. world. God gave. That we might have life and those active verbs, you know, that God is the subject of um, that's where you find the gospel, where in the New Testament, God is the subject of active verbs. God loves, God gives, God gives life, God gave his son. It's all this orientation towards us. God is for us. You know, now it's going to sound like Romans 8, but a lot of times I think John does sound something like like Paul. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, Rob, well, I think Paul it, sounds like John. Well, yeah. there you go, too. But, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God mm -hmm. loved the world. The yeah. world is fundamentally mm -hmm. that which mm -hmm. isn't hospitable to God or God's messengers. So in a nutshell, I, I would just want them to know there's a lot of language in John that sounds like judgment and so mm -hmm. on. But John wants to start by saying God loved the world. God wants to give it life. I have I have a question about this though because we've mentioned John three sixteen a number of times and yeah. is there a more famous yeah. verse in the Bible than John three sixteen? No. There's a local church in my area who they've been standing on a, a predominant street corner in my city lately and they're they're doing their you know gospel preaching which yeah. is it's it's more likely to cause accidents because there's so yeah. many people out there on this <laughs> main Thursday fair and John three sixteen is obviously plastered all over and I'm just thinking. I live in the Bay area and it's like, you know, very secularized community. It's like, people don't know what this means, but like right. you said, what a beautiful passage. If you were to contextualize John three sixteen to a, I, I don't know. Are you still in Southern California? Um, oh yes. Or, okay. So, you know, a, a more of a liberalized, I don't want to say liberalized, secularized, sorry, um, uh, society. How would you contextualize? There's so many eyes that I'm doing. How would you contextualize the message of John three sixteen to our world now? Like how, how would you teach that? Especially like Paul, you're teaching people who you're teaching everything to, because we can't assume a background of things like we're a sinner or live in heaven, like all these things that are on the, the, the cardboard signs that people have where people just have no context for these words. You know, it's really hard to answer the question in the abstract without knowing who's, mm -hmm. who's saying what. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if there isn't an inroad today at two points, one, we live in a world that is just marked by hate. Mm -hmm. And we live in a world that is all too familiar, especially recently with death. Mm -hmm. None of these things are what God wants for people. Right. And when his people or church act as though these are expressions of God's will and purposes for the world, we need to stand up and say that's wrong. Right. That God's will for this world is that it have life, that it know life, not death, and that it live in love, not hate. Right. So I would probably see if that got any purchase, you know, something like that. And and 
Uh, at that point, you have to just admit that uh, there are many people who speak in the name of God who do not speak words mm -hmm. of love and words of life. And that's a tragedy. Mm -hmm. And it's it's I think that's really the single thing that has made it most difficult to know how to bear witness today is mm -hmm. that what we say is just there's just a, a wall over here that it's got the church written on it, you yes. know, and, and how you get people through that. So I, I think that's enormously difficult. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're and, finding it super easy in your... In your... No, because <laughs> I think this is the whole point, right? Because we can go down so many different avenues with this whole conversation saying, look at it, the church is making a mockery of the gospel here, 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 here. Um, but I'd like we need to draw you into the book of Revelation now you, as a Johannine <laughs> scholar. So I'm titling my commentary, Revelation, a love story, mm -hmm. because... It's the gospel. It's the same thing. It's for God to love the world that he gives one his only son and take up your cross and follow me. And that, that's what the book of Revelation is about as well. And yet we have this entire eschatological outlook that's become very popularized in the modern, in the modern Western world about God's anger and God's wrath and God's vengeance and God's justice. And that's colored how we read the book of Revelation. Well, yet, there are those bowls of wrath, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, but I think when you look at it and think, for example, segue here for a second. When you look at the seven trumpets, after the sixth trumpet, it says, and those who were not killed by these still do not repent. I mean, the whole yeah. point of, of the wrath in the revelation is it doesn't bring repentance. Yeah. And I think what John's saying is, or whatever John we're talking about here in, in Revelation's context, John's saying, we're not, God's not using that option. He's not going down the path of wrath because that doesn't lead to repentance. Hmm. And the very you know, next chapter, that was Revelation 9, Revelation 10 and 11, then put them, them together, is John eating the prophetic scroll prophesying yeah. as, as, as Ezekiel does and saying, oh, I'm going to empower my two witnesses. And what are they going to do? They're going to go out and do what Jesus did and die like Jesus did. And then the nations are the nations give glory to the God of heaven. Yeah. I think there's your story. And it's John 3.16 in apocalyptic you know, language. So mm -hmm. we want to invite you to enjoy the book of Revelation <laughs> with us. Well, the new, you know, the heavenly, the new the heavenly city coming down out of heaven from God and the, and the, the line and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of yes. the nations. Mm -hmm. You know, that to me is about as close to John's vision that, that, mm. that the leaves of the trees are for the healing of yep. the nations. That's the ultimate glory of God. That's what and, brings yeah. glory to God. Yeah. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring the glory into it. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So wonderful. Hey, let me ask you one other quick question I wanted to address here as we finish up. But so John's use of signs, the word sign, yeah. not miracles. What's what do you think is the significance of that then and how this maybe relates to our larger conversation? Well, the interesting thing, of course, in the Greek, there is no word that means miracle. Right. So we have that word in English and many modern la other languages do. So in the synoptics, you get mighty deeds powers mm -hmm. wonders mm -hmm. yeah. you know lots of terms but you don't have the, the the what we call the miracles of jesus are not called signs there john does call them signs and one of the interesting things is i think he takes the word straight out of the old testament where you have signs and wonders and you have signs but signs are not necessarily what we might call miraculous in the old testament the birth of a son can be a sign a rainbow is a sign you know all kinds of things are signs that aren't uh, miracles by modern and modern parlance. So um, what are signs? They are things that, how would we say this? 
I, the main word I like to use is pointers. They point mm -hmm. to something, you know, they, they're indicators of something like a stop sign. Mm -hmm. it, it tells you to do something. You're supposed to stop because that's what that means. So a sign does point to something else or points to something. And the question in John then is what do the signs point to? I think almost unanimously, the signs point to, you'll not be surprised to hear me say this, the life-giving power of God in Jesus. He, he's the bread of life. Mm -hmm. he, he makes a man walk. He, he gives a man the light of life. Uh, you know, it, he raises Lazarus from the dead. His signs are all about bringing the good things of God, of the created order into the lives of men and women here on this earth. So I think of signs, I think, I suppose, primarily like that in terms of the the ways they embody the life-giving, show forth and embody the life-giving power of God. Hmm. Does that, that answer what, your question? Or Yeah, it does. And mm -hmm. is that what you think the church then is also called to do, to take this kind of the application, that we're called to do that, not obviously in the sense of multiplying bread and causing the dead to rise, but to take that life-giving power of God to the nations and making it known. Yeah, exactly. You know, so uh, we aren't the bread of life, but we know who the bread of life is. Right. And there are ways in which we can live and talk about that so that the bread of life becomes a gift again for all the nations. Yep. Uh, come and see, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come and see. Come and yeah. see. Come and see. Okay. Uh, awesome. Excellent. Is there anything that we missed that you think, well, you guys didn't ask about this? <laughs> or, yeah. Uh you know, I spent a lot of years working on the gospel yes, of John. I, I try to think what's the one one other thing I want to say, but I think we did cover some uh, some of the basic stuff I'd want to get out there. So Excellent. I'm not sure I have anything to, well, to add. Maybe we'll give you some time to think about it. And when we okay. get to the first, second, and third John by the fall, oh, or there early, you go. We'll, we'll come you back go. to you. How's that? Okay, okay. So. Just just skip over Revelation. No, 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 no. <laughs> so we're getting a lot of the guests to you come, know, to come in, back uh, for Revelation. So do I have a copy of it here? In the introduction, I co-wrote with some of my colleagues mm -hmm. called interpreting the new testament mm -hmm. i actually wrote the chapter on revelation oh here mm. it is. did you okay yeah introducing the new testament that's what yep. it's yeah. called and by the way I... the book that you're holding up right now that uh, i say our our listeners can't i can't see oh okay it is the finest new testament yes. introduction oh, that i know of so that was the really first is. new testament survey I, I ever got and man that was so helpful for me it's, oh, it's thank a, you. phenomenal yes so and you well, Joel wrote, Green, I, and Paul Actemeyer, right yeah right mm -hmm. and um i wrote the chapter on revelation and i'm just okay. thinking i don't know what i'm saying <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was it, it it's powerful to work on it and to write about it yeah, but it yeah it, it it the the overall vision that transcends sort of the if you I sometimes use this analogy. It's like a pointillism picture. You know, the pointillism picture, the famous one, the afternoon on the island of the of the Grand Jat by Surratt. You know, the mm. picnic. You, you don't know that one? No. You know, point, oh, okay. Um, it's in the Art Institute of Chicago. But, okay. you know, everything's done with little points. If you get up really close, what do you see? Just like dots? Little it's, dots. It's, okay. Oh. If you stand across mm -hmm. the room, what do you see? A beautiful you see, picture. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I mm -hmm. think sometimes we get lost in the book of Revelation because mm -hmm. we're mm -hmm. just, we're trying to figure <sighs> out the dots. That's mm -hmm. good. And and mm -hmm. what you need to see is the whole sweep of the yep. picture. Uh, yeah. And we're trying to make it fit into our schema. Good luck with that. Instead of letting it fit with the <laughs> schema of for God so loved the world. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So Vinny and I haven't seen the Chicago Institute of Art because we went to Wrigley Field and yeah, yeah, we we, we were watching <laughs> Chicago baseball games. Yeah, so. <laughs> okay, well there you go. Yeah, and 
Well, I'll send you the link to it, and you, cool. you, right, you'll know cool. this picture. It's a famous picture. All right. And, yeah, cool. and you'll say, oh, that's what she meant, mm -hmm. and then you'll see the analogy. Of All right, and if you give us the link, we can put it in our show notes as well, Alrighty. so our listeners can Alrighty. have it also. Yeah. So uh, this has been awesome. Thank you Seriously. so much. Oh, it's so been much. fun. Yeah, and, yeah. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Yeah, I really yeah. appreciate it. All righty. Right. All right. Well, hope you guys enjoyed it. Share this episode with a friend because seriously, I'm I'm so excited even to share this episode with some of my friends who I know who uh, listen to this. And uh, you could find Marianne's books. Uh, I'm assuming on an Amazon search. Thanks everyone. Thanks Marianne, and we'll see everyone soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.